I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Team Human is an ad-free listener-supported project made possible by teammates like Holger Thoss, James Richard Volpe, Declan Rowan, Alan Davies, Josh Stanley, and hopefully you. Just go to teamhuman.fm and click on support to find the others who gain access to our Discord channel, my paywalled medium posts, archives of my collective work, and conversations with luminaries like Timothy Leary, Terrence McKenna, and most of all, participation in our live Team Human salons in the kibitz room like today's. You're on Team Human, a series of no-holds-barred conversations dedicated to unearthing what makes human beings more than code, more than capitalism, more than selfish genes. And instead of finding this human difference in evidence, we enact it together as a collective. That soft and squishy liminal spiritual space, that's Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, it's Team Human. That's right, our third conversation from the kibitz room deep down in the Team Human Apocalypse Bunker, and you're invited, because I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and we're all on Team Human. Well, in case you didn't know, your Team Human membership, if you're a paying subscriber, gets you a free, I guess not free because you're paying for it, but it gets you an access card, which you can swipe at the front gate of the Team Human Apocalypse Bunker Complex. When the shit hits the fan and the event comes, come to the undisclosed location using the map point on the back of your Team Human access card, swipe once through the magnetic card reader, unless it gets wiped out by an electromagnetic pulse, in which case, I'll figure, we'll have someone at the door with a list. It'll be fine. You'll get in, come down the stairs and into our 40,000 foot suite of rooms. And for now, once a month, you can come to the Team Human Bunker using the same devices just to practice and to participate in the Team Human Kibitz Room conversations like the one we have today. It's a lot of fun for us, and it could be for you too if you were a Team Human member. But if you're not, that's fine. Just listen. It's basically like call-in radio, and uh, we have a good time doing it. I hope you like it. So you've had a long month. Survival of the Richest released, and you've been on a press tour and podcast tour. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. It's interesting. I mean, there's 
You know, I, I've in some ways learned my lesson. On the one hand, I'm really thankful to have turned to story, right? The reason why this book is getting more attention and more talk about it is because there's this big hook story, particularly at the beginning, about my encounter with the billionaire bunker dudes and all that. But the downside to it is a majority of the people who are wanting to talk to me about it want to hear about like bunkers and stuff. Well, how do they keep out the air? And what would you do if this happened in your bunker? And it's like, dude, I'm not an expert in bunkers, right? I don't know. I'm an expert in how someone could think or wish for a bunker, which is a very different thing. I'm an expert in the way that capitalism and technology may have, you know, dovetailed in such a way as to create a mindset that leads people who want to exist one level apart from the rest of humanity and a walking dead-like scenario for that 11-year-old tech bro mind is really appealing. So I can talk to that, but it's really interesting. People are so, I mean, it's a compelling image, but for the most part, I mean, this is media too. Media is so much about the image, the figure, the catastrophe, and not, and it's so much less tolerant for how did we get here and what could we do about it? You know, even the ones that care, I'll do an hour long interview and then like at 58 minutes in, it's like, okay, before we're done, what could we do? <laughs> and I realize when I watch the news or all that, it's like, look at this hurricane. Look at Miami. Look at these people under the water. Oh, my God. You know, because that's what that's what sells. It's the it's the danger and the and the horror. It's interesting, though. But still, I still want to pursue using narrative, whether it's in that Brechtian way to make people conscious or in the Angels in America way. I want to, you know, tell stories. I do want to do theater because I feel like, you know, culture is upstream of, you know, policy and politics and civics and all that. So, um, uh, but this was a very good, very good experiment. And it's going to take some time. And book's been out three weeks. And of course, people are, the initial story, oh my God, is what gets the most attention. But even if it's, you know, 5% of the people exposed to this, then think, well, how did, how, what is this? Or actually pick up and read the friggin' book. You know, that's a win, right? <laughs> I think 5% would be a great number. Yeah. And yeah. if they can read the thing, oh man, that would be fantastic. And yeah. I know I know Own a lot it of first read it and sing it, right? <laughs> or pirate it whatever, just get it yeah. and listen to it using uh, use a audible credit. Um and that means uh welcome everyone. Uh I know that many of you here have read Survival of the Richest and we're really looking forward to exploring some questions and diving into this today. So, let's start with a question that was uh, submitted a few weeks ago um, by CPEV. Hi, uh, yeah, my name's Charlie, or CPEV on uh, Discord. Hey. Um, my question, Douglas, was whether the, um, the recent development with Ethereum has kind of changed your mind at all about the potential for blockchain. Um, just that uh, for anyone who's and not followed it. Um, Ethereum's just moved from a, the kind of more of the, the kind of planet destroying proof of uh, proof of worth system to a different system, which is um, apparently much less energy intensive. And I, I know there's I know that you have lots of reservations about blockchain, which are nothing to do with the energy usage. But I just wondered whether this had made a difference, yeah, to how you're thinking about it. Well, I mean, most simply, there, it, it's better. Right. So proof of work, which is the way Bitcoin works and the way Ethereum worked, is the way that you verify the authenticity of transactions is people convert atoms of the real world into bits. That's really what you do. You basically burn stuff. Um, you burn oil. You spend electricity as a way of proving that you believe. And it's this kind of giant act of faith. And Proof of stake, the way it works, I mean, the difference there is instead of burning stuff, what you do is you take the people who have the most of the coin. So the people who have the greatest, literally the greatest stake in the blockchain being preserved because they have the most money, they're the ones who then authenticate the transaction. So 
I like it in that we're not just spending energy to do it, but the part that concerns me is, oh, so you're saying the people with the most money get to make money, that's the the service fees, by administrating or authenticating what's out there. So what we've done is kind of recreated the original banking system where the people with the most money get to administrate everything else and financialize our transactions and make some profit on it. But now it's going to be, and rather than the original, whatever, banker, Rothschild, you know, global bank, Davos conspiracy people, it's the the Ethereum people, whoever has those billions of dollars of, of Ethereum money. Um, yeah, sure. Um, it's, it's, it's better. At least I don't have to worry so much about wrecking the planet, you know, so uh, when when, you know, when Elon Musk went and bought a billion dollars of Bitcoin, he did more environmental damage than all of his Teslas, you know, have saved to this date. Right. It's just like it was huge. It was just like, oh, why don't I just undo everything I've ever done? Um, so I'm, I'm happy for that. And yeah, it will be nice to be able to now think about to speak about possible uses of blockchain that. Uh, without worrying about also killing lots of people or destroying the environment at the same time. So yeah, I would argue I am more hopeful. I have a friend who's trying to start a game company and, you know, and wants to do some kind of a fun play to earn thing. And it's built on Ethereum. So it's like now I don't have to be like, embarrassed for him. I don't have to shy away. I can offer him help and guidance on how to do that without feeling like I'm contributing to something awful. So while I don't yet see the the models yet of, of blockchain application that I love, and my concern is that blockchains make us think in terms of really scaled solutions when most things can probably do better with local solutions still for global supply chains of things for looking at how does coffee move around the world how does oil work what are carbon offsets i think that there's a lot of potential ways to use a a decentralized ledger that ethereum or or any you know any blockchain could be i think there's some uses for it so yeah it's taken some load off my mind some weight off my mind that now now the the we we can do these things without the necessary undertow of destroying the planet so sure i'm a little bit more hopeful that's great i mean do you are you working in in blockchain at all do you is that part of your your thing yes um mainly in research so um We've done a few projects for kind of tech for good companies. Tend to be more focused on, you know, creating something that seems to be exciting and worthwhile and, and socially and good, maybe environmentally interesting, rather than just making money. But um, yeah. yeah, come it's across a lot of interesting culture issues within those organizations where maybe blockchain doesn't solve all of the human stuff that goes into making an organization work, a project work. And that's the other temptation. It's interesting that I do. I I talk to people who are either doing that or trying to build like, you know, the the ideal algorithm to incentivize, you know, the best kind of writing on Medium or whatever it might be. And it's like there's this temptation to come up with something that solves all the problems rather than being satisfied with something that solves some problems and it should be okay because I get it they want to turn the key turn the thing on and then never think about anything again it's like no it's never going to quite run fully on automatic even the you know the fed you need a federal reserve some human intervention all right this is a little bit too much this way a little bit too much that way so it's it's funny and I also I would I just went to that um or a, a moment of that unfinished conference they do in New York and met this woman who you should look up Primavera de Filippi. Have you heard of her? No. She's this really weird, wonderful, like uh, uh, internet-y, blockchain, decentralized web theorist who's really looking at how do we connect uh, either do we use blockchain to model things on the ground that then we do in real ways, or ca- how do we connect blockchain activity to what's to conditions on the ground? So she's trying to kind of do 
almost like what would a Marxist blockchain look like? How would that work? And uh, it's really, uh, really interesting. She's also has this idea she calls institutional studies. You know, so w- what's happening outside our institutions? What are all the externalized effects of things like blockchains? And then how do we bring them back in? How do we account for them? But yeah, it's fun. I really like blockchain work when they're looking at, you know, uh, blockchain governance and what would that look like? How do we vote differently? Could we program a different voting system? It's kind of fun fun to, to think about, at least. That's great. Thanks so much, Douglas. Sure. Thank you. All right. Thanks so much, Charlie. And our next speaker is going to be Vivian. I guess my question is, I, I read the book and it's absolutely great. But yes, the hook is, I mean, it's it, it's great, right? So the the we we find out that you know, the billionaires don't really have a clue really what to do with, with the coming, uh, you know, with this so-called event. And they're scared and, you know, they want to insulate themselves uh, from the disaster that they're contributing a lot towards. So hearing that, there's kind of a, a cultural vibe towards like this doomerism and and one of the things I really liked about hearing you in the interviews is says like it kind of takes the wind out of that because the authority of the billionaires is kind of subverted when we you know have, have this idea of like okay the emperor has no clothes in a way because they're not they're not really coming up with any real good solutions and so so their authority as late leaders and obviously gets is bunk and we can kind of laugh at them. But then at the same time, I don't want to, we don't really necessarily want to resort for kind of this uh, naive optimism of like, okay, well, now we can laugh at them. Uh, (laughs) The end of the Disney movie, uh, roll credits. So um, I guess my very long and rambly question is, it's like, um, yes, awesome. Now what? What are, how, how do we engage with people to say, yes, the world's, you know, on fire, but like, let's, let's, uh, let us not dwell in, uh, this sense of absolute hopelessness that is like very effective, uh, in, especially during my generation. Well, I think if we can get people's focus off the false figures on the screen, off the the meta catastrophe and back onto others in their real world things become more manageable you know you you there's a brittleness to the kind of global solution there's a brittleness to figuring out how are we going to stop global climate change can we build a big enough blockchain that can somehow blah 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 blah, blah and do this in a giant coordinated ultimately one size fits all fashion. You know, can we go to Singularity University or the or Google and get an X prize for a hundred million dollars and then shoot sulfuric particles into the sky or uh, you know, build a rocket or what? If we if uh, I was hoping that not just being able to laugh at the billionaires, but realizing that, okay, you know, nothing good happens in that that's not the direction. Right. Don't look to these people as your as your role models. Um, that once you do that, then you kind of take your face off the screen and look at at what's around. How do I dig my neighbor out of this hole? Or how do we educate our kids to do this? How do we make our town more resilient? How do we find you know some local agriculture to support our town rather than these giant um, you know global supply chains that are so brittle? So not to become like prepper towns, but to become uh, uh, resilient towns that are that are cherishing localism and becoming more aware of the the externalized impact of of their ongoing choices. You know, it used to be as easy as trying to explain to people, oh, you know, yeah, the prices at Walmart are really low, but the long term cost is actually really high. Um, but they've got to see that in a local way because, oh, look at this business that if they, you know, help this local business stay alive, their main street gets better, their tax base goes up, their schools get better, their neighbors get happier, their kids have more people to play with. And just, it's all that, you know, for me, it's 
it's I still want to get a barbecue on my block rather than everyone having barbecues in their backyards. You know, that's that was like my youth, my 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 early childhood anyway. I was in Queens with one barbecue. And part of me, I mean, I feel like Steven Spielberg or someone longing for the great American family of his youth, but I am sort of reaching back to that feeling of of community and how much stress that takes off everything, the planet and the this and the that. I mean, that's where Bannon is, right? That culture is upstream of of policy and everything else. So if we can engender a culture of mutual care, we end up taking so much weight off the uh, off the uh, corporations and the environment, and we we certainly push the apocalypse further out. I know it's not satisfying. It's because it's not an easy. It, it, it it's not an 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 easy simple answer, but it's an easy complex answer, which is so easy to. It, it's really easy to implement, but it might not seem like it's doing enough. You know, when you when again, if the examples are people boring holes under under the under the city of Los Angeles to for cars to run around. You think you need a bigger solution. But you know, just you know, deciding you're going to tutor kids how to read or you're going to uh, help change the drainage pattern in your town or these all these little things are what ultimately add up. Yeah, I mean, one of the big themes that I took away from your book was the idea that we need to kind of scale back a bit more. I mean, it's not a very sexy thing to say, and investors run from that term. But but like even in our own like narratives, right? We kind of have to scale back. Like, okay, well, let's bring it more closer to the immediate circles versus the okay, yeah. You say it's complex, and, but it's it's actually a really easy message. So thank you for reiterating yeah. that. Yeah, I sure hope. Yeah, I mean, they, they call it degrowth, but we're not supposed to say it because people hate that term. But the idea is we are not in service of the GDP, right? The GDP is supposed to be in service of us. So it's not our job to keep the economy growing. It's the economy's job to keep us alive. And it's a big difference. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much, Vivian. And next up is going to be Michelle G. Michelle G, where are you from and what is your question? Hi, I'm Michelle. I'm calling from Portland, Oregon. Um, and my question was about, you mentioned it just briefly in one little section, that the economic system in the late Middle Ages was much more supportive of humans. And I'm very intrigued by this. And I'm wondering if you can speak more and maybe point me in directions where I can learn more about this. Yeah, it's funny. I wrote a book mostly about that called Life Inc. in like 2007 or something right before the crash. And it was it was largely about that. And then I do it again, maybe a little bit more intelligently in Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus which I wrote two books later. And because I had basically written this down in two books and then alluded to it in Team Human, I was like, I'm only going to give it a sentence in this book because I don't want people to think I'm rewriting the same thing. But yeah, I write about how when they got back from the Crusades, they had opened up all these trade routes to uh, uh, the rest of you know Europe and, and Africa. You know, they had stuff. They brought back all these innovations from the Moors, and one of them was the bazaar, which they didn't have in Europe until then. And the bazaar we did in Europe as the the market, and so people started rather than bringing everything to the vassals, to the lords, and delivering up, they started bringing stuff to the market, and they created this kind of you know uh, impromptu eBay where everybody's trading stuff, and they had local currencies that they would issue in the morning that were optimized for, you know, just for transaction and they would expire at the end of the day. It was just like little chits, kind of little IOUs as money. And um, they they had this growing economy. That's when we got the, the fastest, greatest rise of a middle class really ever in history. And of course, as they got wealthy, the aristocracy got poor. So they made local monies illegal. They made the local businesses illegal. You had to become a chartered monopoly. You had to borrow central currency from the from the central bank at interest. And they they wiped 
that away. And what I've been hoping is that, you know, with the advent of a of a digital renaissance, we can begin to retrieve all of those medieval innovations, the commons, which was a church innovation, the commons, local currencies optimized for transaction and flow and uh, promoting small businesses in a, in a working in a peer to peer way rather than everything going up through giant corporations and then back down, um, back down to us. And in some ways that was the original promise of the blockchain was that we were going to be able to authenticate transactions without centralized banks. And that's why I get concerned with even proof of stake where it's like, okay, now there's these other rich people that are going to authenticate our transactions for a fee, you know, and once we're stuck on a monopoly currency, if we are, then they can take whatever fee they want and we're back where we started. So that's what I'm sort of looking at. How do we, um, how do we keep it down, down on the ground? But yeah, um, Life Inc. is my sort of first effort uh, when I read the old corporate charters and read some of the old, all the old original stuff. So it's a little bit geekier and then throwing rocks at the Google bus really tells the story, um, how we ended up in a digital age, doubling down on industrialism rather than retrieving medievalism. And what would it look like if we retrieved the, uh, uh medieval market mechanisms in a, in a digital environment? So yeah, uh, take a look at that one's fun. Will do. Thank you so much. Sure. Thank you, Michelle. And uh, hope it isn't too rainy in Portland. So let's call Robert to the stage. Thanks for joining. Where are you from and what is your question? I'm from Markham, a city just a little north of Toronto in Canada. So I unfortunately haven't read the book yet, but I listened to you speak about uh, survival of the richest a few times. And <laughs> so maybe I'm risking, risking being a little too meta, but maybe meta in the more transcend and include rather than transcend and abandon or something. But um, I'm curious, I've always wanted to study media theory a little more, and I'm curious your knowledge in that area, how it might apply to something like new community media. So it's meta, given that we're somewhat struggling with uh, telepresence problems here. And um, yeah, I'll make a two-parter, how that might relate to a sort of metaverse idea I've had about maybe creating something I've called an open learning commons, which is more about community curated resources and maybe what you might contribute to a sort of open resources for media theory, curious people like me. I think I understand. There's, I, the first part was sort of a sort of a general how kind of media studies and media theory plays into all this. And the second is more about uh, the, the idea of creating a kind of a community resource, I guess, kind of an online informational resource about kind of media and media practices and studies and theory and stuff? Yeah, I guess the Open Learning Commons would be more in general about sort of any learning resources, not just, say, media theory. That's more maybe something I'm curious about. I just don't exactly know where to start. But I'd love to be able to sort of study under you in some ways, but that's sort of, that's not for for now. I have... um, three young children under the age of two. So pretty busy. <laughs> How do you get three under the age of two? I guess there was doubles. Um, yeah. There's twins. Twins. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. It's funny. I, I worked a lot with Howard in the early days on the well and, and brainstorms and, you know, some of the uh, uh, communities he was building. And then he was really good at saying, okay, how could we use just like a good WordPress website and and develop some easy and appropriate educational sort of modes? And I feel like, you know, when Google Classroom and Canvas and these other ones came around, I feel like they looked at Howard's work and even did a book called like, um, what was it, Net Gain or something about being sort of net smart or something. Um that shared a lot of those best practices. I feel like they tried to model a lot of them, you know, and it's, it's funny. I do some courses online. I have to do them for, for CUNY Queens and I'm doing them through Blackboard and it's such a clunky, horrible thing and so difficult and uh, so, so much about IP and, and, and uh, preventing people from leaving once they're in there. It's just, this is, you can, you can feel the priorities of the interface. I mean, it's so much, of what I and I think Howard was into, without getting too meta, um, we kind of believe that any course you do online is as much about being online as it is the course. So you have people interrogate 
what is this discussion like in this mode versus that? What is it like to be in this text-based chat room versus the video one versus the audio one? And what what is each one good for? You know, because we're experimenting with the classroom at the same time that we're in the classroom. So the uh, people used to ask me, you know, what kind of courses do you like to see online? And I say, oh, I like to see courses about being online, online, you know, I want to use computers to learn about computers or learn about digital things. You know, I don't uh, love the idea of people learning their, their, you know, math or English or whatever necessarily in, in a computer because it's, it's got such flavor to it. It's got such a, a strong, a strong bias on it. You know, I'm, I'm also, um, 
um, like must have been a year or more ago. And um, she is concerned that many of us, particularly on the progressive left, think that friendship is a prerequisite for effective engagement. You know, and she calls it the friendship frame, like that Oprah Winfrey, hands across the world, why can't we all just get along and then we can solve these problems together? And what she's like, that's a, she thinks that's an unnecessary and an impossible step, that what's better is learning how to be responsible for people who even hate you, you know, and they, and they are responsible back to us. I mean, and one example is like, you know, you've got the screaming kid that, you know, You've got to, you can't stay at the amusement park anymore. You've got to bring them home and they have to take their nap. And they think you're the enemy and you're actually being kind, even though they don't know it. And it's just, it is, it is what it is. So how do you engage with, you know, for me, how do I engage with the, with the MAGA? How do I engage, not with a full on fascist who wants me dead, you know, that you've got to at least be at the place where we all want the others to to survive, right? We're not sociopaths, but it's it's um, responsibility and kindness are related, but they're just a little bit. I think they're just a slightly different comportment, a slightly different frame. So what I'm trying to get to is how do you engage effectively with people that you've got no rapport with? at all, you know, which is a little bit different than the team human thing, which is like, find the person, look in their eyes, establish rapport, then you have solidarity, and then we move together as the great team human we are into any obstacle. Um, It's like, no, what about those ones over there? All right. Uh, Maybe don't stare in their eyes and establish rapport, but let's at least put down our guns and figure out what the heck is going on here? What do we really want? How do we talk with each other? Um, Which is something other you know it's something other than kindness it's more what levinas is talking about and the face-to-face encounter between two people is not just that love tantric you know i'm falling into your eyes thing but it's also or it can be um highly tense and dangerous but we're going to maintain this in order to get through this moment together for our mutual um our mutual benefit so how do we do that and that's the other thing. It's, it's, again, by coming to the ground, realizing that these things that are really separating us and making us hate each other are 99% of the time they are catastrophic figures <clears throat> on the screen, often created by people who make money by keeping us apart, right? And uh, if, we can, if we could take our focus off that, however we feel about the other person, um, and start engaging, uh, then that's sort of the that's sort of the beginning of it. And then I guess that's, you know, sometimes in boring ways and, and, you know, all the stuff that Mika Sifri talks about, it's civics and, and government and, and community. I mean, I know it's, it's, I shouldn't be so disparaging about it, but I mean, for me going to a town hall, I mean, it's boring, right? But it's um, an obligation. It's part of my responsibility to my community. So I'm trying, you know, I'm trying to actually to, to, to walk the walk. Yeah. So what, Part of what you describe is very similar to what anthropologists we've been calling reflexivity, basically, <laughs> like an intersubjectivity in anthropology is basically this. Uh, what I was aiming at was more as to what enables us to not be cynical. Like there's an action to go towards the other and, and share this, uh, these horizons, uh, you know, from Gadamer and uh, Hermermas and all of that, but more of the, not even the discipline, just the, the what enables us to, to feel good about this, to be kind to ourselves. Well, it's interesting. I mean, there's kind of two kinds of cynicism I'm thinking of. There's the the active kind of cynicism, which is like, okay, Steve Bannon doesn't believe a lot of what he says on his show. Or Tucker Carlson, maybe, although I don't know about him. But Steve Bannon, I know as a fact, doesn't believe a lot of what he says on his show. But he says it as a means to an end because it can activate his crowd and and lead to the kind of revolution or whatever it is he thinks he wants. So that's cynical, uh, active cynical. Then there's this sort of more passive cynical, which is like having a cynical 
perception or reception of something. So you could say, you know, the billionaire story in my book is like, oh my God, look at these guys. And it might be engendering a kind of cynicism of like, oh, I don't believe anything anybody says anymore. Look at those World Economic Forum people giving loans and then just taking everything from Haiti or wherever they're doing it. Um, Ugh, um, I'm cynical about that now. Uh, So how do you move past that? Um, I think structural analysis helps to understand that most of these people are just trapped inside systems that they think are pre-existing conditions of nature and 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 trying to to promote rather than cynicism you try to promote what i've been calling it like denaturalization you help people denaturalize things that they've taken for granted. You denaturalize capitalism. You denaturalize selfishness. You denaturalize industrialism so that you can see, oh, these are not state, these are not indigenous, you know, for lack of a better word. These are not original things. These 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 are constructs. These are our social constructs. So it's not, um, and some people would say, oh, you're so cynical. Um, no, that's not cynical. That's seeing something and that's where media theory um to go back to good old media studies robert comes comes in uh so important media studies is so much about seeing well when was this technology or medium invented what kind of environment has it created how have we come to mistake that environment for the conditions of nature and how can we not cynically but 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 intentionally learn to to recognize that that um, artificial atmosphere. So, you know, that's it's sort of another, it's another path to what cynicism is trying to offer us, which is distance and safety from these, these awful people and constructs. To start anyway, it's hard because I get cynical, especially when bad things are happening. <laughs> yeah. Hi, fellow humans. Hello. Hey. So I'm Canton Becker. I'm in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And here's here's the brain space that I am in. Um, I listened to uh, two different podcasts on the same walk yesterday while I was walking my dog around. I listened to, um, Douglas, to your latest interview with, uh, or your discussion with Clinton Ignatov. You guys uh-huh. were going, doing a deep dive into Marshall McLuhan. And I really tuned into how you talked about, um, you know, how to read, like not just how to read at all, but how to read deeply and, um, you know, how to really pause on the, on the real, uh, on the combinations of particular words and get into it the way that McLuhan did. And, and that was inspiring to think about, you know, to really hear academics talking about academic stuff. And then the other podcast I listened to was from, uh, your undivided attention. And they had a, they had a half hour special to talk about TikTok. And I've been doing, I've been doing internet stuff like making websites since 1995 and I've followed all the trends and I've never been so scared of anything as I am of, of TikTok. You know, um, you know, it used to be that, you know, a few years ago we used to say that, you know, really Facebook was the internet. The Facebook got to be so big that for many people, Facebook just is their experience of the internet. And now as you know, by the end of this year, we're going to have something like 1.8 billion people using TikTok. And, um, you know, and it's it's this race to the it's this race to the bottom for the attention span. You know, like how how can we how can we grab the attention span of kids uh, with just you know twenty seconds, ten seconds of material? And um, you know, the the uh, podcast Your Undivided Attention talks about how you know if uh, in China where this app is made, if you're under fourteen, um, they actually change the algorithm. And they feed you uh, science and STEM articles, and they feed you patriotic videos, and they limit your usage to 40 minutes a day. And they have only certain hours of operation for TikTok. But the app that they export to the rest of the world is this wide open, all you can eat buffet of 20 second snacks. So um, I don't want to, I don't want the discussion I'd like to have, what I'd like to hear your thoughts on or other people's thoughts on, isn't about you know, the regulation or how do we, how do we, you know, stomp down this app, but how do we find hope when we consider the future of entertainment, especially with uh, kids right now? Uh, because this is what they want to consume. And I just don't see how we get from TikTok to learning how to read carefully 
books by Marshall McLuhan. And it seems like it's such a huge gap right now. Um, and I find myself in a place of real hopelessness around this that I haven't felt even back in the, in the deeper days of Facebook. Well, not to make too light of it in a, in a, in a way that some of my contemporaries did in the 90s, but the ancient rabbis were horrified by the prospect of Torah stories getting written down instead of being transmitted orally. They thought the whole social and interpretive nature of Torah study would be lost. No one would be memorizing these stories anymore, so it wouldn't be in anybody's bones. And people, by seeing it written down on paper, they would start to relate to these stories as if they were um, literal history rather than beautiful yarns. Um, and they were right in many respects, but it happened. And over the centuries, we learned how to do literature. And we got to James Joyce, who finally broke literature. And now, you know, we're, we're going somewhere else. And while I agree with you on TikTok consumption, I wonder about TikTok production. You know, I was, uh, my daughter uses, uses TikTok. And I remember in the early days, it was all about like these dance moves and you would try to invent like a 30 second or a one minute dance and then hope that other people copy your dance. So I was watching rather than people stuck in an Instagram image watching trance, they were at least moving, right? They were looking at it and they were putting down the thing and then moving around their bodies and taking a video of themselves doing that dance. And so, so the memes became very enacted and, and that was a little encouraging to me. And now I'm looking, you know, at people, it's, it's certainly limited what you can do, but there's people with some really interesting talents. There's this girl, my, my daughter watches some, girl, I think she's in college or high school, that makes these weird voices. Like she does voiceover. She does a crying baby. She can do all the Super Mario characters and she can do some actresses. And I'm thinking, this this girl's good. You know, if I was a, a you know, Barbara Harris or whoever's the new voiceover casting agent these days, I'd call up that girl and get her a job, you know, so when you're done with school, come talk to me. Although I'm sure the real one these days would say, leave school and come talk to me. Um, that shows my bias. I'm like, finish your education. Then, then we can talk. But, um, uh, I see your point. It's really the, the, how, how brilliantly tuned the algorithm is in terms of what it selects for you to watch. You know, the, the, the perhaps the the potential narrowing of who you are, and then when you talk about China, it's interesting. I'm like, yeah, they're really good at limiting and and directing the the algorithmic flow that goes to young people, and they're also really good at controlling the algorithmic flow that goes to older people, right? To prevent anything that's going to question the authoritarianism of their of their state. So it's a it's a slippery slope. I mean, I love, you know, just, uh, limiting things for kids. I like that when my daughter logs into Netflix, she gets a different selection of movies than I do through some kind of parental control, you know. Uh, uh, but I, I, it's not, I don't know if the media situation is as dire as it feels. And that's partly because I don't see, except for outliers, I don't see as many kids falling prey to this as used to. I mean, I do know I, there, there are some, you know, uh, I see kids who develop ticking disorders because they go into a ticking group, you know, kids who don't have it and then they acquire it through mimesis or some psychological process. There's a, a lot of cutters, a lot of anorexia. It certainly got worse during COVID when they didn't have real world interactions to balance it out. But I'm seeing a little bit, and I don't have the data to prove it, but as I look around, I'm seeing less kids texting while they're walking next to each other in the street. I'm seeing uh, a little bit, I feel like they might have overdosed 
on this stuff. And then they associate these computers and these screens with their classes that they had to do during COVID. And now they're, uh, uh, I don't know, maybe they're lifting themselves out of it. You know, the, the, there's an arms race between our psyche and these coercive technologies. But we maybe, just maybe, are, um, are, are starting to, to launch a counterattack. No, I'll take some of that hope. I'll, I'll, I'll ingest some of that hopium. I feel okay with that. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> Thank you. As long as we're talking about cynicism, right? Let's have a, a moment of hope. Excellent. Excellent. So it looks like we'll have time for the final two people in the queue to speak before we wrap up. So the first in the queue will be Sean the Brewer. Sean the Brewer, you are invited to join the stage. My question is, I, I don't know, maybe a, a, a tiny bit, uh, not a challenge to you, but but it's it's a question about the the title of your book and it's it's a title that if i did not know you i would look at it and really get the wrong idea as to what it is i would judge the book by its cover and think that it's something analogous to you know like lives of the rich and famous or mtv cribs or something that that kind of you know uh uh is, is celebrating all the grossness of these billionaires. And I wonder if, if, if you thought about the fact that people might look at the cover and think the, that it's some, about something that's exactly opposite of what you mean. Well, nobody has, has thought that this book, even from the cover, that it's pro-billionaire. Everybody is known. Once you put billionaire in a title and talk about them surviving and being rich, um, people know <laughs> that you're not okay. saying, oh, great. How to, you know, the, the what we can learn from the prepper billionaires about how to save our own families in the difficult future. And also, I mean, the word fantasies helps show that there's, this is not real, that they're fantasizing. And, and the cover with this weird... You know, the world is dying and they're in a little bubble. It's like, oh. Um, so, no, I, I, I haven't been worried about that. It's more, um, it's almost more the opposite, that people are going to think I'm just ranting hatefully at these horrible prepper billionaires who want to, I mean, the original title for this book I had was Leaving Us Behind. And I liked that title. I liked it better myself because it was like it had a double meaning, right? They're they're leaving us behind in their rocket ships and all, and they're leaving the concept of us behind. Mm. So leaving mm. us behind seemed like a really good follow-up to Team Human because Team Human is about, you know, let's have us phones instead of iPhones. And uh, I felt like, so this would be like, okay, the people who don't do Team Human, who are not on Team Human, or are leaving the whole concept of a collective behind are these individualistic, egomaniacal, you know, um, billionaires. <laughs> so it sort of made sense that way. But, you know, the original article on Medium was Survival of the Richest. Everyone thought that leaving us behind sounded too sad and new agey and whatever. So I let them, I let them win. All right, fair enough. That was a very satisfactory answer. Thank you so much. Thank you. Excellent. So let's see. Polyverse asks, can you elaborate on hanging out with old people and how you started doing that? Oh, yeah, it's interesting. Um, I mean, my real hanging out with old people was started with, um, you know, hanging out with Timothy Leary, who at the time was an old person to me and was dying, you know. So that was, um, other than my parents, you know, that was my first real experience of, you know, being with someone who was at times helpless, you know, and it's, that's rough, you know, to see a person with such ego and dignity, you know, you know, have poop on himself and stuff, you know, to be in a, uh, such a difficult situation and to have to allow himself to accept the help of others around him. That was huge. You know, it was huge for me to see that and to, to see, you know, what that takes, you know, what that takes. Um, but now it's really just because I um, used to work in the basement of my house. And then after some time and having a child and all, I stopped. I moved out and I got a little office in the town of Hastings on Hudson where I live. 
And so I go out, you know, I go out for lunch, for lunch and, and, you know, to do things. And most of the people who are in town during the day, or a lot of them are, you know, elderly people. They're, they're, and, and, you know, some of them, some of them are just fine. I don't need anything. And some of them, you know, need help. There's this, you know, woman, I see her a lot. You know, I happened to come out for my first sort of coffee break um, around the time that she's coming out of her apartment with her dog. So she, there's her, there's two doors with big springs on them in the vestibule of her apartment. And there's her walker. So she's like there with this walker and the dog is this little yappy thing. And it's like the leash is tying up around the legs of the walker. And she's holding out one door and trying to hold the other one and get the dog through and then get out. And, you know, if I'm close by her, I try to be, I go and, you know, just hold the door open for her. And she's, it's like makes such a difference in her day, but it makes such a difference in my day. You know, just being able to connect with this other person and provide some, you know, small value in their life. And then I just ended up, you know, I'm just one of those people who I'm from New York, you know, I'm from, I'm a stoop person. And, you know, I end up with the equivalent of the stoop. I get to sit out there on a bench or on the stoop with, you know, a, an 80 or 90 year old person and you know, just talk about stuff. And the, the perspective that they bring is, you know, three or four decades more than my perspective. And it's just, it's so odd to me because I know, you know, most of us grow up thinking of old people as, as irrelevant, or maybe we're preparing ourselves, you know, to, to like put them in a home or not feel bad about it. So, because we're going to institutionalize them, we don't want to feel guilty. So we like to think of them as irrelevant somehow, or we don't want to imagine ourselves getting to that age. So we assume that they don't feel or something or not really thinking, but I learn so much. There's so there's there many of them anyway are so much less swayed by the moment to moment, you know, panics. It's uh so it's just been uh you know, not just educational or intellectual or even heart, but it's been um I don't mean to sound too spectrumy, but but it's regulating. If you know what I mean, it's like regulating. It's it's neurologically, emotionally, and spiritually regulating. It is calibrating, um, and and it it's because for some reason in America our generations are kept apart from each other. They they don't they don't interact. You walk around in a in a city in Europe at night, and there's people are out together. There's babies and old people and teenagers making out and men throwing dice and, you know, women talking about the, it's like, there's like four or five generations coexisting in the same social venue, you know, and not at a wedding, right. And in real life. And I feel like that heterogeneity of, of age is as important as, um, as as diversity of of race and and uh, and class and economic class, and uh, so yeah, so for me it's just it's it's, it's easy to do. They're everywhere. Um, <laughs> they're everywhere. You can find and but um and generally they're really willing to answer questions and 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 help you figure stuff out. Um, they they are valuable and want to be relevant. They will, they will volunteer their service to you for very, very little in return. I mean, really the only thing you have to pay in return is attention and respect. And um, boy, it's a, a winning exchange. I think that was a beautiful answer to end this kibitz room. <laughs> with. So thanks. And thank you for being on Team Human. You too can participate live in the Kibitz Room by becoming a member of Team Human. Go to teamhuman.fm or patreon.com slash teamhuman. Team Human is produced by Joshua Chapdelin and edited by Luke Robert Mason. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps.
Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.